Welcome to the Cross Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross Border Interview Podcast featuring George Smitherman. First question I usually ask every politician, former politician, is where did your sense of duty come from? I think that um, the, the the ladies in my life uh, that uh, instilled in me a strong sense of uh, social justice, and um, I saw politics as a as an outlet for the combination of those things and also organizational activities, which my uh, trucking side, trucking father kind of drove into the, uh, the equation. And when you talk about the ladies in your life, are you talking about your mother and your sisters or are you talking about your uh, the figures that you worked with while you were uh, a staffer for politics? I mean, my mother and my grandmother. But when I came to politics, I found many women who were to be exceedingly influential on my career in politics. Now, one of the things I find interesting in your uh, uh, in your book uh, is you you talk about your mother and you talk about your father openly and how uh, they both had two different uh, views on the world. But you don't talk about if they were political. So were they political? Did they get involved with politics or was the political streak in your family you and you sort of brought it out in them? Definitely. Well, I would say more in the case of my father, I definitely was the one that influenced him to politics versus the other way around. My mother, my mother was never an overt partisan, but I'm sure she was always a voter. My grandmother, on the other hand, was a distinct partisan insofar as she was an admirer of Pierre Trudeau's. And my grandmother had a poster of Pierre Trudeau pinned to the back of her bedroom door. And uh, so I think that was uh, that was quite a strong over partisan influence. Not that she was going out to party meetings and such and drag and dragging me along. <laughs> <laughs> now, your first sort of uh, introduction to politics uh, came at grade 10 with a student body election, uh, sort, sort of similar to me. I, I decided because my father said you shouldn't run for uh, student government, I would run for student government. And you say that you would hand out candy, go to uh, classroom to classroom room and handing out candies to people uh was that a spark that you sort of just ran with because you talk in your book and yet again i'm gonna i'm just gonna keep on referring back to the book i apologize i i read it three times and i i get something new out of it every time um when you ran that grade 10 student body election, was that the election that sort of said, I could potentially see myself in a larger elected position or was it a, I, I just want to give back to the students? Well, I think that the, you know, the uh, student election, as I look back on it, uh, we, we ran quite a sophisticated campaign and it was just that a, uh, that I had a, a group of uh, friends that were seemingly really motivated to do signs like things like put up signs and go actively, actively campaigning. And, um, you know, I, I 
think that uh, that really, you know, did spark my interest in politics. And I think it was another one of the places in my life where I became very comfortable with public speaking, which is advantageous to politics. And, and you talked that you you weren't very you weren't a very confident person growing up because you you were a heavy set uh, boy. So some people might look at you as an easy target for a bullying. So when you go into politics, you you have to have a thick skin. So were you able to uh, adapt your thick skin of politics at that young of age as well? It's a good question. Um, you know, I think that. Um, I had, in the one hand, yeah, like I was subjected to uh, some taunting and uh, stuff like that because I was, uh, you know, called things variously like uh, the Pillsbury Doughboy or compared to Bib, the Michelin mascot. And I later sold truck tires, so that didn't exactly uh, extinguish the, uh, you know, extinguish the comparators. But on the other hand, from the time I was a really little kid, I spent a lot of time alongside my father in his business environment and stuff. So I got confidences from that. So I think always it's like a little bit of uh, on the one hand and on the other. <laughs> and, you know, you hope to try and uh, do your best to uh, compensate for, uh, you know, for any of those areas where you might otherwise feel, uh, you know, a little, you know, feel somewhat, uh, feel somewhat deficient. But from multiple occasions through my school career in grade three and grade six, I had a chance to do speaking in front of the whole school. And that's certainly something that does give an, an opportunity to build confidences for, for young people. So I think those were some important positive influences to compensate for, you know, whatever lack of confidence might have come from uh, my, uh, you know, portly uh, disposition at a young age. Uh, you, you, your rise in politics kind of is a unique track. You start off as the president of a local uh, uh, provincial uh, riding association. You become a staffer for the then premier David Peterson, and it just goes on and on from there. You you, you seem to. And I, I say this with all respect, luck out, because any other person would just die to have your career path of being a staffer for the liberal government, for working for a mayor, for working for a cabinet minister in the provincial government, to being a cabinet minister yourself and being an elected MPP. What, early on, did you know that if I don't take the steps now, I'm not going to do it? Or what was your career tra trajectory early on for you? Was it just to be a staffer or a politician right away? You know, um, in the year that I turned 18, there was a municipal election in Etobicoke and I spent a lot of time drafting my campaign literature and thought very seriously about running. So in a sense, I had the political bug at an early age. Luckily for me, I had the intervention of a municipal politician in Etobicoke that 
told me to bide my time. And uh, so, you know, certainly I uh, certainly I I did that. I think at each step along the road, I have had opportunities which were greater than I might have ever dreamed of. And, you know, that's the that's the Cinderella, you know, that's the Cinderella story aspect of uh, of uh, my life that a young man could wander in off of the streets to a campaign in Etobicoke and, you know, through a little hard work and some good luck, have, uh, you know, quite an array of extraordinary opportunities. It's a great Canadian story, and um, I feel, you know, so fortunate to have, uh, you know, had, you know, many positive steps along the road. You had the pleasure of working with one of my other uh, idols in politics as well, Mr. Hugh O'Neill. Um, I, I met him a few times when I worked in Belleville uh, as a reporter back in Belleville and then also on Leona Dombrowski's campaign. Uh, I met him numerous times during the 2007 and 2011 campaign. What was it like to work with him? Because I, I just knew him as the guy who came in and everyone was in awe of him. What was it like to work with Hugh O'Neill? Well, I say uh, that one of the one of the kindest things that's ever been said to me was said to me by David O'Neill, Huey's son, who said that uh, in many ways I was like the I was like the son he never had, and conversely, nobody in the most po- in the most <laughs> positive way because 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 I was so connected to him in his in his joyous activity which was politics that man was the most gifted natural politician and and david what david who's now now a politician was relatively more shy let's say and stuff like that whereas for me um i had a great father so i don't mean it as any uh any discouragement whatsoever but that um uh that uh for me at a time in my life uh where i could give everything to my work uh hugh, you know hugh took advantage of that and shaped it and gave me important and interesting responsibilities and stuff like that and uh he's uh one of the great great sadnesses in my life is that he passed but at the same time uh that my kids uh got to experience uh huey o'neill and we went to brighton speedway where my former colleague lou rinaldi made sure we had a good time and huey was uh you know so impressive so impressive to my uh, to my kids and we stay in touch with donna till today because these are these are some of the most amazing uh these are some of the nicest, kindest, most amazing people I've ever met. When you talk to constituents in his old writing, they would say he was a constituent man as well. While he was a, uh, a cabinet minister, he still took time for his constituents, right? Uh, especially with his portfolios, he would always sometimes be not in his constituents, but he would take time when he was there to reach out to his constituents, go out there and be at events. Um, when you were elected as well, did you take that into consideration of, I want to image myself after Hugh and be that on the ground guy who people can come up to and just see at the grocery store and talk to, but also be someone that the government can rely on in important files. It was, it was a different situation because um, I represent downtown Toronto and the legislature's in my riding. So it was relatively less of a conflict to be 
at a lot of meetings in the evening and to be doing a full-time slate of work as a cabinet minister. But, you know, I, I Huey was I, – I, so I never lived up really to the standard that he set because he was for Quinty first and everybody and everybody knew it. And the privileges that came as a cabinet minister were, were secondary. And I saw that in the, in, in, the, in the furrowed brow of concern when there was an announcement coming about a job loss or what have you. So he, he lived and breathed and felt the impacts, good and bad, of what was going on in Quinty first and, uh, first and foremost. But, uh, you know, I've always found it interesting that uh, Tip O'Neill uh, kind of coined the phrase that all politics is local and Huey O'Neill uh, definitely gave rise to that. You, you talk in, a, in your book that there was one moment during uh, from 1990 to 1995 during the Bob Ray government uh, where he said to you, I wasn't on your side on this one. And you're talking about Bill 10 on that. Was that a blow to you to hear your political mentor, your person that you've stood side by side for the last five years to say that to you as a gay man who was trying to find himself in the society and the person you looked up to wasn't able to be on your side at that moment? Well, that was a difficult moment for sure. That was Bill 167. 167, uh, sorry. When when uh, Bob Ray's government brought in a package, a majority government brought in a package of reforms to broadly uh, create a more equal status for LGBT people, but um, the Ray government didn't have the votes for it and could find no votes in the opposition or or practically none. And, uh, you know, Huey was standing with the majority in his party at the mo- in that moment, which was my party, and they were standing against me. And it was a tough moment. And uh, but, you know, he approached it. He came up and spoke to me in the gallery. And, um, you know, uh, one of the most positive things I could say is that when I became an MP just a few years later in 1999, I had those moments and some of the saddest moments for the Ontario legislature because they removed gay people from the galleries and putting gloves on and treating them terribly. And uh, I was so proud in a sense just a few years later to be elected as an openly gay man and to have had the opportunity to make a lot of progress for the entire legislature to move past that chapter where the gay people where gay people were made to be unwelcome in the Ontario legislature to move forward relatively quickly to change that and and I had a chance to uh, lend support to a conservative government bill that ended up forced by the Supreme Court at that point but uh, ended up addressing some of those same inequalities that had been left unaddressed in 1995 but that was obviously a very challenging moment uh in my relationship with uh in my relationship with uh, Hugh. And, and I think um, even in your relationship with the party, because you talk about uh, you were almost going to quit the party over that, uh, the uh, potential bill, because Lynn McLeod, the leader at the time, allowed uh, members to vote openly and to vote whatever their conscience allowed them. So you talked that it was David Peterson who sort of reined you in of saying, OK, stick with us because you you are the future of the party. Lynn will just be around for a few years. Well, what David reminded me, he said, you know, you're a young man, but you've been in the party longer than her. And 
other people and it's your party as much as it's anyone else's and you have to stay in it and seek to be an influencer uh, within it. And uh, that's why I always call David Peterson my leader <laughs> whenever I see him. Uh, he's my uh He's, you know, he's he's my leader, and I, uh, you know, I look up to him, and uh, and he was available available to me at a point in where I was in political crisis with my political party, and that's another example of the good fortune that I've enjoyed. Just talking about David Peterson for a second, your leader, the uh, the former premier of Ontario. Did you learn? Uh, did you what did you learn from him that you brought forward to your time in elected politics? Well, you know, David Peterson uh, for me was a was a modernizer, and um, the Liberal Party uh, up until let's say about 1980 was in Ontario was a very conservative party, quite rurally rooted. Hugh O'Neill was part of that caucus even, and then Stuart Smith was elected, and uh, the psychiatrist from Hamilton. And although he didn't attract much support, he didn't do well in elections, he kind of started the Liberal Party on a more progressive path. He was from an urban area and had more uh, modern thinking. And David Peterson became the embodiment of that and and moved that forward. And his government from 1985 until 1990 was a source of you know, incredible uh, progress on many, many, many fronts. So for, um, for, for me, he stands as a uh, uh, stands as a uh, symbol of uh, symbol of uh, of a progress and of the renewal that came as uh, Ontario um, moved on from 42 years of consecutive conservative rule. Um, you decide to put your name after four years out of uh, provincial politics because you move into working with Barbara Hall in the city of Toronto. You uh, work with federal MPs as well. Uh, but you decide in 1999, you're going to put your name on the ballot for the first time. Um, you, you, what for any politician to see their name on a ballot, it's sort of serendipitous because you want people to vote for you, but you're saying, Am I going to live up to the expectations that I'm putting on myself to do good to represent my community? When you started that 1999 campaign, uh, Mike Harris was a popular premier at the time. He was sort of slagging in the polls, but you were up against an incumbent uh, MPP at the time. How, how did you go through that campaign and think, I can win this? Because for me, every campaign I've ran in, I've gone, I can win this. But in the back of my head, I'm going, I'm going to lose this. <laughs> well, I think that um, in that time frame, uh, momentum from the fight to save our local hospital was an important part of the dynamic. And uh, Mike Harris might have been popular in some parts of Ontario, but by then he was past his... Uh, past his popularity point in downtown Toronto. So the fact that we were represented by a conservative MPP, Al Leach, who'd actually been responsible for uh, driving things uh, uh, like the uh, mega city, um, it was a, you know, it was looked, 
it was looked at, it looked like to me a place of opportunity. Put another way, when the Liberals lost the seat in the prior election, all three political parties were within a thousand votes of one another. So it was definitely uh, it was definitely within reach. And I had quite a dynamic community capability at that point, stemming from having run that campaign, the Staying Alive campaign at Wellesley Hospital. So um, it was my uh, it was my moment, the intersection of uh, my interests and my energy and the opportunity that was a seat that would not likely uh, hold in uh, conservative hands. It got more interesting by the intervention of John Sewell, the former mayor of Toronto, who had been a very outspoken critic of the government, and he decided to run in Toronto Centre Rosedale, as it was then known, to get at Mr. Leach. Mr. Leach quit, Sewell remained in the race, and that made for an even more interesting dynamic, uh, garnered more attention for the race, and I learned a lot of things during the campaign, campaigning against a pro like John Sewell. Um, you, you talk of, uh, so that 1990 elect, 1999 election, you, uh, you win uh, by, uh, you win, if I'm not mistaken, by 36, you're, you're 36% and you're the top winner, correct? I, I, I don't, don't know. Don't know I, that I, number? With, uh, <laughs> I, it wasn't the largest, it wasn't the largest plurality uh, in Ontario, but it was uh, several thousand votes, uh, uh, but uh, something in the high 30s maybe. Okay. Um, so that that moment when you first get elected, um, you, you again, you talk about it in your book that you, you didn't set out to be the first gay, openly gay MPP in Ontario's history, but because... There might have been ones beforehand, but they weren't open. For you to be sort of, and I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the interview, that you were sort of an idol to gay kids around uh, rural Ontario who didn't have someone to look up to. Did that weigh on you a bit to be that uh, spokesperson to sort of live your life to uh, ensure that kids who are struggling with their identity in Newcastle like I was or uh, Thunder Bay, Sudbury, that they had someone to look up to? I looked at it as a responsibility and as a and as a privilege. And I, I might have said first off, well, I did. It's, it's not that I knew that widely that there that I'd that the uh, that you know some openly gay person at Queens Park had you know made a ripple out in in rural Ontario, but. I got involved in a well, you know, one story when I was Minister of Health and I was visiting in Thunder Bay and a, a mechanic came up to me and said, I, it was very difficult for him to say, he said, I, my, my son is like you and I just want you to know that it means a lot that uh, I can, you know, that we can look to somebody like you. <clears throat> and that meant... Um, that meant a lot to me. One of the things that my office got involved in, <clears throat> pardon me, soon after I was uh, elected was the uh, prom, uh, the, the prom situation for Mark Hall in Oshawa. Now, that was pretty close to where you were. Maybe that's even the same. Uh, uh, maybe that's, that's I, practically I, the same school board. But uh, I was going um, to school. I was actually in high school when that was happening. And I was like, oh, God, I don't like people were asking questions. I was like, I don't want to answer any questions because I wasn't out at the time. So I saw you get involved, though. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we saw a situation where, uh, you know, a young man wasn't allowed to bring his male date to the prom and we didn't see we didn't see that as right. But what we were able to do was summon up the gay community in the form of uh, in the form of lawyers, one of whom is on the one of whom is now on the bench and another who, uh, you know, another uh, Douglas Elliott, who's, uh, you know, a hero to so many for a variety of uh, actions and such. And uh, David Corbett, who's now a justice, uh, and we brought them to the. Fo- I helped to bring them to the fore on behalf of uh, Mark Hall, and we want an important uh, justice. What not everybody knows is that because Mark wasn't uh, wasn't uh, eighteen. I think he was 17. Uh, I was like the litigation guardian, meaning that if judgment had been found against Mark, I was actually personally on the hook for it. So I'd already uh, I'd already told Douglas that if uh, it occurred that I had to pay any fees, that we were going to be having some big fundraisers and he was going to be the first contributor. So that was a heady moment, to be honest with you. It was great fun. And we also went and participated in a bunch of gay pride days and I walked down the with the parade. Maybe I was the grand marshal with the local MP in Sarnia at their inaugural gay pride parade, as an example. And that was a fledgling little modest uh, affair. And that summer, I think I went around to 10 or 12 of them in a variety of places in Kingston and such. And it was great to have a reason in a certain sense to be out there and to try and connect with the community. That those connections, uh, hearing from stories like Mark Hall's, like that uh, auto mechanic who in a rural area, does it weigh on you from time to when you were going through government to say, I, I, I need to focus on the my constituents, but I also need to focus on those rural communities who might not have representative in the government while you were in government, while the PCs were in government, they didn't have representatives in the PC government under Ernie Eves, under Mike Harris, so. So did it weigh on you a bit that you had to have an outlet to talk to your partner, talk to uh, your former your caucus colleagues as well? Or was it more internalized for yourself? I think I was single mostly then and I saw it as an opportunity to go out and party a little probably like um, I don't really see it as onerous. I saw it as a tremendous privilege. And I have to say is that I was I was in the caucus of Dalton McGinty and Dalton McGinty is a progressive person and a kind person and gave me lots of encouragement also to participate participate in outreach and to get around and travel. So, no, no, in all senses, I, I, I never felt any burden associated with that. I never felt any great responsibility insofar as I was obviously only going to conduct myself as a forthright, out and open person. So if anyone was going to – so that wasn't um, – that didn't require any great change for me. I was just going to be me and, you know, people, you know, and and that worked out pretty good. Mm -hmm. I remember one time I was, uh, there's a place, there's a, uh, there's a place in Ontario called Mount Forest on the edge of Gray County. And it's, it's, it's uh, Gray Highlands there. And the sign on the way into town says, hi, healthy, happy. And they don't even get 
you know, as a consumer of cannabis, like they don't even get the they don't even get the joke necessarily. Like they're making the point that it's the Gray Highlands. It's a lovely spot. We went to the opening of a building there and the the mayor came to me and he said, oh, you know, thank you very much, Mr. Minister. Thanks for coming out. Oh, and I said, oh, don't mention it, your worship. I said, it's been many, many years by now. And, uh, you know, everyone got a chuckle out of it. So that was just me being me. And um, it was it was no great. It was no great pressure. It was really a privilege. Uh, going to that 2013, uh, 20, 2003 election, I apologize. Uh, Dalton McGinty is against Ernie Eves at this time. You are safe in the riding of Toronto Centre, so you have the tendency to go out and uh, just bomb a few of the uh, PC announcements and just see what people are doing. And you uh, you get a reputation of being sort of a attack dog in uh, your four years of that uh, four years of elected government. And that election happens. You win your seat. Dalton McGinty is now premier-elect of uh, uh, the uh, province of Ontario, the first Ontario uh, Liberal premier since 1990. You talk about in your book that you wanted wanted, uh, transportation as your (laughs) ministry, but he gave you health. So was it a big uh, learning curve for you to learn that health profile right off the bat? Because when you think of health, health is one of the biggest uh, portfolios in uh, Ontario and one of the most dangerous because it has so many time bombs potentially in there. So you had to have a steep learning curve from day one, didn't you? I I think everybody was shocked when I got that uh, call. Um, in the run up to the election, uh, I think I'd done, I had a chance to do two things, which uh, built confidence for McGinty to make that call. The first was that, as you say, I'd been on the spot at most of the other parties' events doing instant commentary, and I did that without causing myself uh, or any any particular grief for our party. And it was a very valuable thing to be able to offer. And you know, I I, I basically followed her. You know, Ernie Easby rolling up Highway 400 with his little OPP motorcade, and I tuck my car in on the back bumper of the last fast-moving vehicle because we were going to the same event. Like it became commonplace. And uh, the other thing is that auto insurance was uh, really, really, really uh, on fire. Uh, seemingly, it is again. It's a very difficult public policy file. But I had a chance uh, to participate on the Liberal Party behalf in kind of uh, organizing province-wide roundtables on auto insurance and helping to craft some policy relief. And uh, those things, that I think, and there's a lot of healthcare involved in auto insurance in a certain sense. So I think that that policy exposure to Dalton also uh, gave him a bit more confidence in my capability to uh, manage the opportunities and challenges at the Ministry of Health. Now, the Ministry of Health in Ontario is the largest government department in Canada. The Department of Finance in Ottawa distributes money, and right now they're doing a lot of policy work, but the Ministry of uh, Health runs program and has about 400,000 employees. So uh, it's a handful to say the least. But as a politician, because there's so much activity there, it has a really large political staff. So when I first arrived there, Tony Clement having just vacated the place, there's this long hallway, this little rabbit's warren of offices 
all of them empty. And the first thing it did, I called over to the premier's office and I said, if you've got any adults over there, send them my way because uh, I got a lot of empty, uh, empty uh, seats. And one of the great things that came of that phone call was that Charles Beer, who had been an MPP and a cabinet minister, uh, came in for the first year was my executive assistant. And that was really helpful in trying to, you know, trying to drink from only two fire hoses at the same time or whatever, because the, 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 just an exhaustive number of files in a place like that. And I think one of the, one of the odd things that helped me to survive there for five years or one of the surprising things was that I just have a reasonable capacity to remember numbers. And it's a numbers factory there when you're dealing with budgets that were 30 billion and now they're practically 60 billion. You gotta be able to keep your zeros straight. And uh, here in the time of school shutdown, I'm spending a lot of time trying to encourage my kids to uh, enhance their uh, their mathletics uh, so that the, at least the mechanical math skills can be there to serve them through their lives. Um- during your time in health, and then you got transferred to energy as well because they were the two portfolios that you uh, looked after. You had major policies that you announced in both of those files. One of them, and the, the one that I I, I, I kind of chuckled about at in your book, is the Smoke Free uh, Ontario Act. And your little uh, back and forth with the former MPP for Durham, John O'Toole, about how you called him a liar for telling people that you were out smoking with them. Um, in the day of social media, politicians would get slammed on uh, uh, social media about what policies are being introduced. Twitter and Facebook were not popular back then. Did you hear from uh, Ontarians about uh, the policy that you were introducing about the Smoke Free Ontario Act? I think that um, you can tell whether you've, you know, the extent to which you've uh, hit a vein by the nature of the reaction that comes from Ontarians, it's important to remember that every MPP is a re, is a is a vein in their a weather vein in their own sense of of issues. And if you're listening to them well, you can get a lot of feedback for how things are uh, things are going. Uh, coming forward with a bill like the Smoke Free Ontario Act was a very very popular piece of uh, policy work. It enjoyed a large constituent following amongst the public and for the government. It offered a lot of support from the Ontario Medical Association. So if you think about it, that's a that's a really important stakeholder of any minister of health. And a lot of times the energy of an association like that is not lined up with you. It's sometimes, you know, a lot of times you're negotiating over money as an example. So it was a really good example where we're able to work in alignment with a constituent group, the Ontario Medical Association, that had been advancing the cause of tobacco control, uh, you know, uh, for uh, for for a long, long period of time. It's something that I'm really very proud of as a piece of legislation. Now I work in the cannabis sector and I find that uh, the Smoke Free Ontario Act has been applied willy nilly to cannabis. Uh, uh, but I can assure people that when I was developing the Smoke Free Ontario Act, it had only tobacco in mind. So now we find it used uh, the same parameters used for uh, cannabis uh, cannabis control. This is uh, kind of an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. So are you okay with that, though? 
well, we should uh, be careful not to uh, in in the cannabis sector should be careful not to uh, uh, to uh, be comfortable in an association with a product that has a very very different uh, pattern of uh, pattern of death and impact. It's not the it's it's not a um, it's not a perfect alignment. So we end up in a situation where the uh, we've had legalization of cannabis, but we haven't had, uh, but we haven't had uh, consideration of where that uh, cannabis could be uh, best consumed in, you know, in a fashion in keeping with uh, good public standards and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's sometimes, it's in the context of the Smoke Free Ontario Act. It's sometimes left kind of like it's a legal substance, but you should go and smoke it behind the garbage. But you should go and smoke it behind the garbage can in the driveway. Like it's created some uh, some challenges in that sense. And of course, and the other thing, of course, that more and more and more cannabis is not consumed in a in a uh, in a in a smoked form, but uh, but. Um, <laughs> In, you know, with uh, 2.0 and a variety of other uh, forms of uh, consumption, it's evolving. So we'd like to be able to see cannabis consumption uh, emerge uh, outside of uh, outside of a complete alignment with um, with uh, tobacco. But okay, and I understand that, and we we've jumped ahead to the last part of the conversation. But let's do it because I I I, I want to get into this conversation. So you are the CEO and president of the Cannabis Council of Canada. Um, in that role, how do you lobby the government to uh, separate those two, tobacco and cannabis? Because when when legalization happened, there was an uproar out west, I'm not sure, in Ontario, of we need to treat it harsher than tobacco because we don't want to smell it. We don't want to see like we don't want to see people do it. People are going to walk down the street in downtown Toronto and they're going to smoke it. So how do you lobby the government and say they're not the same? One one is a potential killer, while the other one is just going to alter your mind. Well, the good news in all of that is that uh, uh, first and foremost, everybody is aligned with the public policy objective of limiting access uh, for youth and making people making sure that people who are consuming it are aware of what they're consuming and that the product should be uh, safe and regulated well. And those things have uh, proven uh, quite uh, sound so far. And a lot of the worst concerns that have been raised, like some of the things that you mentioned, that hasn't come to pass because uh, Canadians are, uh, you know, Canadians are at the end of the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a socially conscious, a socially conscious group, and people are very, very, uh, are very, very aware. But we want to make sure that um, uh, as uh, the evolution of uh, products occurs, that the regulation can evolve also, and that's uh, that's uh, something that happens over time. Now, Bill C forty five, the Cannabis Act. When it came into force, it had a built-in review period that will take shape in 18 months or so. And during that discussion, there'll be an opportunity to take a look at the provisions of the uh, provisions of the act and see uh, if there's room for more differentiation between uh, between those products. One of the big things that people. I'll give you one example. Okay, I'm go sorry ahead. To interrupt. No, go let, ahead. Let me give you let me give you one example of what we're what we're challenged with. 
the absence of advertising and uh, communication about products has created an environment in Canada where most of the cannabis is being differentiated on the basis of how strong it is. So that there's very little information that can be provided about the cannabis product other than its strength. And accordingly, a lot of consumers are actually therefore looking for that higher strength uh, that higher strength product. Uh, whereas uh, whereas, there are many other uh, products that uh, could offer positive effects for people if it were if there was an opportunity to explain uh, a little bit more about the uh, makeup of the cannabis. We have a lot of depth of uh, we have a lot the, the cannabis plant offers a lot of uh, depth terpenes and a variety of different characteristics, but we mostly are communicating just around THC and CBD. And the more that we can communicate about the whole plant, we think that would be, you know, an example of something that would be beneficial to consumers. But right now there's really no room to do it in the labeling environment uh, on the packaging. So these are kind of all examples of something that's all about the regulation and it's woven into uh, a review of the legislation, which is coming up in uh, coming up in a year or two. So one of the things, and it's back to the comparing the tobacco to cannabis. One of the things, uh, tobacco is regulated countrywide. Uh, it's the same in every single country, every single province, every single territory. Uh, what you get in one uh, province is going to be the same in the other in another province. With cannabis, the federal government has left it up to the provinces to look after the uh, distribution, the sale, and the advertising rules around that. So um, when you're in your role now, how do you potentially look at 12 different or 10 different provinces, three different territories and say what's good for one territory is not good for another or how do you make sure that everyone's on the equal playing foot because from day one when it was legalized, all provinces were not on the same uh, uh, footing because some provinces said we're going to look at it, we're going to see what the best way to do this. Other provinces said let's do it right away. So how do you work with 13 different entities well it's the canadian style where we have a national piece of legislation which created the legal framework for cannabis but the framework established quite a bit of jurisdictional control for the provinces and the territories sale and distribution. The advertising rules are the same across the country, uh, but uh, local provinces and territories can establish rules around the retail model and whether there'll be delivery. And indeed, across Canada, you've got a real patchwork of uh, a real patchwork of uh, models. It's quite fascinating. And for these cannabis companies, it makes their operation all the more difficult uh, because they've got to uh, operate with all of these various uh, uh, ter- provincial and territorial jurisdictions in mind. So it's definitely a, it's a complication, but it's kind of the Canadian way, this uh, striking a balance between a national mandate, but one where the, where the national government negotiated with every province except Manitoba uh, an agreement which uh, shares responsibility and also shares excise taxes. So the province and federal governments are partners in sharing 
the taxes that are uh, that are uh, brought in as a result of uh, cannabis. Would it be easier though for the uh, for the cannabis companies to just have one set of rules across the board? Because uh, and that's the issue that some people might find is, hey, I want to I want to go home to Ontario and go to a cannabis store and buy some. It's going to be different from Alberta, or is it going to be different from Saskatchewan? Wouldn't it just be easier for just one set of rules? I, I know you talk about the great Canadian framework, but let's be honest, one simple rule is better than 13. Well, it might be easier, but it's not what we're facing. And uh, the model that we have, um, you know, may have been a necessary accommodation for uh, for being able to bring province and territories along because uh, it was a, uh, you know, a significant piece of us uh, of uh, social initiative on the part of the on the part of the government, the national government. They chose a model which uh, shared the responsibilities and they did that clearly. They signaled that clearly right out of the gate so it's challenging yes but no one could be surprised uh, no one could be surprised by it and uh, uh, and companies have to be uh, you know us uh, uh, smart and very aware of the situation occurring in each province and territory look at in the context of COVID-19 there have been a variety of announcements at local levels which uh, uh, differed from province to province in terms of essential services and the models of uh, uh, the models of access so uh, it's a rapidly it's a rapidly changing environment you got to keep your eye on it so what's next for the cannabis industry though well, I think that um, what we uh, continue to look to do is, uh, firstly, to survive the challenges of this COVID-19 period. This is a startup sector where there were many capital challenges to begin with, and COVID-19 is not good for anyone's business as a minimum operating costs are up and the ability to sell cannabis has been more restricted because retail environments have been closed down uh, the the but but we're very optimistic about the future because we are on a growth pattern and every month we have the opportunity to win over uh, new clients. The cannabis, uh, the legal recreational cannabis sector is about a $2.5 billion uh, business a year, but that's 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 expected to grow uh, quite rapidly over the course of years because we're only at the moment collecting about one third of the total recreational market. That represents growth, growth in tax revenues and jobs for Canadian provinces and communities going forward. So we're optimistic about the future but for right now everybody's in like most industries are in a real fight for uh, a real fight for uh, for survival is very challenging uh, business conditions especially if you imagine being a startup business uh, I should have asked this as the first question into this uh, segment um, but what got you involved in the cannabis cannabis industry what 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 drew you to it and what made you be, uh, become that uh, president and CEO of the cannabis Council of Canada? You know, for a long time, you know, even going back to uh, the time when I was Minister of Health, I was very open to the prospects that cannabis offered medicinal benefit. As a gay man coming out of the uh, coming out of the gay community, I'd witnessed for many people suffering from HIV and AIDS that cannabis was a very, very uh, successful uh, therapy for addressing uh, some of the side effects of the medicinal regime for those patients. So I'd long since felt that it had therapeutic uh, 
beauty, should say. Um, uh, in 2014, when the Harper government began to license producers, I was uh, approached by a group that was looking to initiate the construction of a facility, and I uh, worked with them for a period of time. And since 2014, I've been involved one way or the other in the emerging cannabis space. This opportunity came along recently, and I, I took it on. It's a, it's a big challenge to create a national organization and to harness up resources from, uh, from companies and to corral their uh, voice and take unified positions. Uh, but I'm working to represent them at the national uh, level. I think one of the great things about this sector and what really appeals uh, to me is that it's so spread out across Canada and cannabis companies have provided a lot of economic life in rural and difficult to service communities and uh, I think that um, uh, that's why the promise of the sector with more growth over time is so important for Canada especially as we face down these challenges associated with COVID-19. One of the big uh, challenges for the industry is education and we talked about that be a little bit before but how do you educate a society when you can't educate uh, people with advertising? So is it just getting out there to Facebook, social media? How do you ad- how do you educate people about the benefits, the medicinal benefits of uh, cannabis without advertising it? It is a uh, it is a real barrier, and it presents some of those challenges, like I was uh, speaking about uh, before, where we end up differentiating product uh, more just on the you know the strength of it or uh, or what have you. I, I think that. Um, I think that over time, as we move past cannabis envisioned in its dry flower form to the 2.0 products, whether that's edibles or the, new, the, the beverages, which I understand are uh, being quite well received by uh, consumers, I think what we're going to see more and more and more is that it's going to be older consumers that are looking for cannabis-infused products that offer them therapeutic benefit and relief that we're going to continue to see an evolution towards value-added products which skew towards uh, dealing with inflammation and these kind of ailments which you know practically everyone over 55 is facing I think this is the exciting future of the whole plant is that we start with the you know we start with the visualization around the flower and the rolled cannabis and to some extent we get stuck there and we get stigmatized but we're going to see over you know quite rapidly if you look at the maturing of markets in places like Colorado, which is now has six years under its belt, you see this quite rapid evolution in the range of products, movement away from dried, beyond dried flour and into a form of value-added products that have more and more of a focus on keeping people healthy and well. Those are really, really massive markets, and that's the exciting uh, upside and potential of the of this. And for Canada, as a country which has uh, staked out an early lead, we want to see legislation which moves uh, to keep things uh, good from an economic standpoint. What I mean is, in the United States, 
they focused a lot on hemp. And in so doing, they've unleashed a lot of the potential of CBD. We have focused so far, so far rather more on THC. And there's a lot of economic opportunity in a global context tied up in CBD that is in, because of Canada has a natural advantages around hemp as we've been involved in that fiber for a longer period of time and stuff. So really to make the point that we want to give Canada the economic advantage that come with being a first mover and make sure that these value-added Canadian products are finding more and more markets globally as more and more countries adopt their policies in favor of medicinal cannabis in some places and in a few places, recreational cannabis. Now, we, we currently have a federal government who is uh, quote-unquote pro-cannabis. They're the ones who introduced the legislation to make it legalized and uh, introduced Bill C-45, like you said. Um, but we have an opposition party who is not so in favor of uh, cannabis legalization. Uh, the current leader said that he would potentially look at decriminalizing it uh, or criminalizing it again. Um, every government changes back and forth. Uh, let's be honest that uh, one party in power now could change or the next party in power could change what this party has. So do you hold out hope that we can get this done quickly enough that when we do transition to another party in power, their ability to potentially roll back what gains we've made in the cannabis industry wouldn't be able to happen. I think we're at that point now, to be very okay. honest with you, especially especially when I look at the way the cannabis licensed producers have uh, are spread out across Canada. They're touching so many communities. Those have been in rural communities, sometimes the last best hope for economic opportunity. And a lot of those are writings that are represented by non-government members, uh, non-liberal members, let's say. And those licensees are out there making relationships. Uh, their employees are active in the community and all of those sorts of things. So I, I think that because the policy has been socially so well received and so responsibly, you know, implemented in the Canadian way, maybe some criticism because there was a lot of regulation or this or that, but not some wild west model, a very cautious approach where people have participated in the legal market in a responsible way where we don't see uptake in participation of cannabis amongst youth, which is an important thing that we're watching, et cetera, et cetera. I think that the policy is uh, well-established and and would, uh, would not see significant alteration by change in political party. But we're very active as an association staying in touch with uh, members of uh, all of the political parties and encouraging our members to be in touch with their licensee, uh, with uh, the members of parliament in the areas where they operate and it's spread all across the country like more than 360 licensees as you know as as uh, points of economic opportunity and light now I, I worked for municipal government uh, during the introduce uh, introduction of uh, legalized cam uh, cannabis cannabis and one of the things that we you would often hear from residents is if you legalize cannabis you're going to legalize everything else because that's the gateway drug. If you legalize cannabis, you're going to see an uptick in crime because people are just going to break into cannabis stores. So 
uh, as the Canadian Council of Cannabis, Canadian Cannabis Council, Ca- Cannabis Council of Canada, sorry, um, do you have stats to say no, crime hasn't increased and no, um, you're not seeing that uptick, like you said, where youth are wanting to smoke cannabis as much as people thought they were going to? Let me say that um, firstly, the cannabis, the the statistics that I've seen and the comments that I've seen from the chiefs of police and such uh, is uh, positive with respect to the implication of legalization. I don't have those stats at my fingertip, but uh, that's what I've uh, that's what I've uh, that I've heard. In the context of gateway drugs, I would make a couple of arguments. Firstly, uh, for me, uh, uh, I had a period of time in my life when I used drugs and um, hard hard drugs and cannabis for me was an off-ramp drug not a gateway drug and uh, I think one of the things that we're going to find is that there are some uh, people uh, some people suffering from addiction that could find uh, helpful treatment in aspects of the cannabis plant I would also say that um, that a lot of people might gain access to a variety of drug products by uh, by dealing with someone outside of the licensed environment. But in our environment, is created very very safe, controlled access uh, to products which have been uh, thoroughly tested. So we have differentiated from uh, any other uh, uh, any other sorts of activities. So I think that this is actually works in the other uh, in the other direction to create uh, create uh, uh, safe distinction between those uh, between various products and like I mentioned in statistics uh, have been positive so far from a social standpoint not reflecting upticks in youth consumption and that's obviously something that we're all watching exceedingly careful I've got a couple of youngsters coming up and I'm uh, certainly working hard to make sure that they're well informed about the various uh, Uh, risk profiles and especially about the idea that the young brain uh, needs a good bit of time to to develop without interference. Um, Before I let you go, because we're almost on the hour here and I don't want to take much more of your time, um, I do want to thank you for sitting down. Um, You have been informative. Uh, I, I love the fact that you are so passionate about a project's so uh, and so engaged in the product too because you you find people who can just uh, spout details but you seem to be passionate about uh, uh, making sure that people are using cannabis safely and the true uses of uh, cannabis are uh, educated to the general public so I want to thank you for that Thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, But uh, I do want to say also for your book, uh, I've read it three times. Like I said, it you it is truly uh, unconventional candor. And I I, I do ask this question and this will be my last question. Usually people write an autobiography at the end of their political career. Is this it for you? Are you done with politics and you've moved on to cannabis, which sounds like a weird comment? (laughs) You know, I, I admire so much the people that are in political life, and I'm so privileged to have had a chance to do that. And representing people is a is a very special responsibility. But I, I just don't think I could work that hard again. You know, if the if 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 ever my community comes calling and the moment is uh, where I'm the only person capable or more capable than others, sure. But there's whole new generations of inspirational leaders, and I'll just always do my part to encourage more people to participate in. Uh, 
in the public processes and uh, you know not 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 looking uh, not looking for any political runs for myself and now um, for people who want to buy the book they can uh, get it through your website and then also on Amazon as well but uh, from and and this is in your book part of the proceeds of the book go to the Casey house what is the Casey house uh, Casey House is uh, is what was known as an AIDS hospice. It's a hospital in Toronto. Um, it was started in the roots of the AIDS epidemic by June Callwood, the great June Callwood, and many other supportive people named after her uh, son who passed uh, at a young age. And Casey House has emerged as a uh, center of knowledge around uh, supporting people with HIV and uh, AIDS. And the most vulnerable people in our society are the ones that are uh, at risk of that. So I've always uh, loaned my uh, personal advocacy and limited philanthropy in favor of uh, HIV and AIDS and especially the good work of Casey House Hospice in downtown Toronto. Awesome. Mr. Smith and George, I want to thank you very much for doing this, uh, for taking your time out of your day. Uh, we could probably talk for another full hour just on cannabis, uh, but I do want to take uh, thank you once again for doing this. It's my pleasure. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in next Saturday for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you and see you next week. Bye-bye.